Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, and I am not coming out. In fact, I'm going to see if there's a fourth sub-basement. I'm going to go as deep and as far from the surface as I can here for several reasons. Um, Rosa Brooks is somewhere else in Washington, D.C., as is Ed Luce, but far away in London, England, is Corey Shockey of the double I double S and (laughs) guys, it's like one of those days where we're just going to have to scrape and try to find something to talk about in the international affairs realm. Yeah, what could possibly fill our time? I well, there's no... definitely there's nothing new here. It's total continuity. Well, there's Ethiopia, Eritrea. There's been a breakthrough there. That we is, could, we I, could focus on the Horn of Africa. Yeah, no, I, but I do think that's a good point. You know, we've been working on a, trying to find a solution for Ethiopia and Eritrea since the 1990s. Have been unsuccessful. But strangely enough, when the Gulf and China started getting interested in the Horn of Africa, they got involved and they made it work. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? It's just a fascinating story. Well, that's all with the time we've got, folks. Thank you very much for joining Deep State. <laughs> yeah, okay, so, you know, I don't know where to begin. But why don't I just sort of let's go around the room? You know, we I'm glad this is one of those episodes where we've got our regulars around the virtual uh, table here. Uh, and of course, we are recording just a few hours after the president of the United States uh, stood beside the president of the Russian Federation and uh, knelt before him and declared a loyalty oath. And I would like to get everybody's reaction. So let's start with Corey. Uh, you know, um, it's actually, the president has gone from embarrassing and, and erratic to genuinely dangerous today, right? Like my basic perspective was that the liberal international order was webbed, uh, thickly enough that middle powers could sustain it until the United States regained its footing and its general sensibilities about what was in our interests in the world. But watching the president today genuinely scared me that he sees no difference between Vladimir Putin's judgment about Russian election tampering and Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence's perspective on this. Um, this, like, this isn't funny. It isn't a little thing. This is actually 
genuinely dangerous to the health of the Republic and the independence of the Republic. Ed, our colleague um, Tom Friedman wrote, such behavior by an American president is so perverse, so contrary to American interests and values, that it leads to only one conclusion. Donald Trump is either an asset of Russian intelligence or really enjoys playing one on TV. That's well put um, by Tom. Um, uh, I, I would echo that. I mean, there is a Manchurian candidate sort of. Um, hey, guys. This is consistent with Manchurian candidate um, behavior. I'd like to pick up on something Corey said, though, um, which uh, was about the danger of this moment. Um, you know, Article 5 of NATO is about, is the core of NATO. It's about assisting each other in the event of an attack. And that is sustained um, through the credibility of the deterrent um, that NATO signals to its adversaries, chiefly Russia. Um, what do you think Putin feels about NATO's deterrent effect after Trump's meeting with him in Helsinki. We just, just to judge by the public statements and comments Trump made, where he chose the word of Vladimir Putin, America's chief geopolitical adversary, um, over that of Dan Coates, the head of director of national intelligence and a Trump appointee and the US intelligence services and the FBI and the State Department and so forth. He chose the word of Vladimir Putin over 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 the rest um what do you think putin is going to evaluate in terms of nato's vulnerability to what degree have the chances of hybrid warfare in the baltics further more aggressive cyber attacks on um britain the united states uh, germany and elsewhere gone up since the helsinki meeting this was a potentially lethal meeting um, that Trump um, uh, held with Putin. And I'm just talking about the public comments. We don't have a clue what they said in the more than two hours they spent in private uh, with each other. So, uh, you know, the, there, there is a time for hyperbole and there's a time for sort of sobriety. And what I've been saying is, I think, well within the bounds of, of sobriety. All right. So let me go to Rosa and then I'm going to go to David Sanger, who's crept in in the background as well. Um Rosa, let me start the same way. Not how'd Sanger get in here? Have He's, you know, you know stel stealthy? That's David Sanger is. is they they wouldn't let anybody on this broadcast. David Sanger is the perfect weapon, and you know he's learned. <laughs> yes, he is. He has learned a lot of cyber ninja moves, which, you know, I, I, I just need you. I just need you to know that Corey throws a hell of a party in London and you guys all missed it. And we, we didn't. Well, that's great. I thank you, my friend. That's no, no, that's beautiful. Because that's all that's left for us now, David is parties. Yeah. Let's, that's, let's, let's perhaps. It. We're the orchestra on the Titanic, my friends. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, let's, let's perhaps return to the flow of our conversation here. Um, yeah. Rosa, Rosa, my friend, a friend of many of ours, uh, one of the sort of coolest headed, calmest, least prone to exaggeration diplomats I've ever met, uh, Bill Burns, former uh, number two at the State Department, said, I think that press conference was the single most embarrassing performance by an American president on the world stage that I've ever seen. 
Well, embarrassing seems like the least of it. Uh, you know, we have been embarrassed before by many presidents in many ways. Um, but a little embarrassment doesn't doesn't do too much harm as long as it's not too sustained. I mean, I think I think Ed's analysis is is right that President Trump just sent a very clear message, not only to Russia but to other U.S. adversaries uh, and and states and entities that do not have our our interests at heart, and there are many. Um, go ahead, you know, do whatever you want. I don't really care. You know, I'm 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 making money. Uh, I'm on TV, and I don't really care what you do. We're not going to respond, and that's extremely dangerous. It's essentially an an open invitation that says, "Go ahead." You know, I don't. The United States security doesn't particularly matter to me. Um, I'm more susceptible to flattery. I'm more susceptible to essentially being purchased, uh, and that's what we've seen uh, already. Um, so I'm not I'm not surprised. I do I joked at the beginning that there's total continuity here, and there is total continuity here. You know that Trump is being Trump, and he you know that, that any expectations that he would suddenly come to his senses and be a completely different person um, have of course been defeated. He he was exactly himself, uh, and he did exactly all the horrible things that we could have expected him to do. It's still shocking. It's still just mind blowing. Uh, and that's right. It's still shocking. No. And I, I think, I think, you know, I guess two, two thoughts, you know, one as, as the sort of resident, uh, of doom, you know, the, one of the things that I think is always hard for people to believe is how rapidly things can fall apart. And when you look at some of the, you know, most horrific incidents in the history of, of, of the last few centuries, you know, you look at the slide into World War One. You look at the slide towards the Holocaust, etc. You know, the the the. You think to yourself, well, how how badly wrong could things go in four years? It's only four years, and the answer to that historically is things can really unravel with astonishing rapidity in a few short years. You know, four years is plenty of time to get sucked into a catastrophic war that kills millions. Four years is plenty of time to convince ordinary Germans to, you know, turn their backs and, and in many cases, actively collude in the murder of millions of civilians. Um, you know, so it's, it's, I think we actually do need to take it seriously. Ed, Ed is right. It's, it's dangerous. Trump is, Trump is a danger on many, many levels. He's a danger internationally. He's a danger domestically. You know, he's he's a devastating danger to American democracy as well as to international stability. Um, I guess the the other thing I would say, and to come down from those high heights, um, the other thing I find mind-boggling, even though again it's completely expected, is the hypocrisy of the Republican Party. I mean, it's it's just unimaginable how the Republican Party would have reacted, and Republicans' leaders would have reacted had Obama. Uh, or any Democratic president done or said the things that Trump is doing and saying. And and, and this... Can I just know, interject just, as a Republican? She's right. You know, and, and it's it just... I mean, I do think that we're seeing the difference between those Republicans who have a few principles left and those who don't. But unfortunately, you know, I, I have on past episodes made the point that legally speaking, this doesn't, even today, is not treason. But does this seem like something that is an impeachable offense? Yeah, it does to have an American president standing up there saying, essentially, you know, I'm going to take the word of an adversarial foreign leader over my own government uh, 
is is shocking. Well, let's let's break that down. And David, I want to introduce your response in the same way I've done the past couple. Let me read you quotation from uh, a mutual uh, good acquaintance of ours, John Brennan, who ran the CIA for a while. Another calm guy who is not known to overstatement. Donald Trump's press conference performance in Helsinki rises to and exceeds the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. It was nothing short of treasonous. Not only were Trump's comments imbecilic, he is wholly in the pocket of Putin. Republican patriots, where are you? I had you on mute so you didn't have to hear the entire newsroom of the New York Times. Um, So, uh, you know, whether or not this was treasonous, I'm not sure. Whether it was an astounding absence of judgment in placing American interests first. I mean, for somebody who maintains that uh, this is about making America great again and this is about the U.S., Russia is the only country in which he seems determined to go take the side of um, his adversary. And you have seen, not just in the John Brennan quote, which I think was a little hyperbolic, but uh, you know he's, he's got a political opinion, but take a look at the statement from the president's own director of national intelligence, which came out not long after the president uh, stopped speaking, where he basically, in as much language, in as specific language as he could without getting fired, um, made it clear that he had to go stand with his own intelligence agencies over a president who had um, sided with the Russian version of events, even though the president's been shown the evidence here time and time again. And um, so there's certainly, at a minimum, uh, willful neglect of the intelligence conclusions of the United States government. And the only explanation for that is he can't think about this subject without believing that in some way it undercuts his own legitimacy as, as president. And therefore, he can't entertain any discussion of it, including the possibility that the Russians t- were doing whatever they could in the election and that he still would have been elected legitimately, which would be a perfectly, you know, arguable case he could make, uh, because none of us has come up with evidence that the Russians actually changed any votes. So um, the amazing thing to me is that on issue after issue after issue, he just avoids taking up what is his own administration's position on everything from Crimea to the evidence of Russian tampering to um, Ukraine, to the Skirple killing. I mean, if it had been anybody else, any other world leader, you would have seen him go after him. Well, let me, I've got a couple of follow-ups onto this, but Corey, let me go with this one. Wait, Um, wait, before we do the follow-ups, David, talk about the terrific piece you read on this. Well, I'm doing that, but indirectly. Um, U.S. Constitution. He's too modest to call it, to call it. (laughs) A terrific piece. As you know, modesty is the Rothkopf characteristic. <laughs> um, uh, Everybody's the, laughing, David. Uh, no, I know they are. The U.S. Constitution, Article 3, Section 3, says, Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies giving them aid and comfort. Now, on Friday, Robert Mueller 
yet again reminded us, this time with more evidence, that the attack levied against us by the Russians was levied not by a bunch of hackers or a 400-pound guy in a basement somewhere, but by the Russian military. In fact, by the GRU, the military intelligence unit, he specified the units. He even identified 12 individual Russian military officers who were involved. Uh, Dan Coates simultaneously on Friday pointed out that the United States was under continuing attack and that the red lights are flashing. So we're under attack in a information war or cyber war, but certainly in some kind of activity by a foreign adversarial military. And that attack is ongoing. Now, it seems to me in those cases, denying the attack, supporting the attacker over our own uh, uh, forces, distracting from the attack, minimizing the attack, is in fact adhering to the enemy and giving the maiden comfort. Corey, what's your reaction? It is the president's behavior is unquestionably giving aid and comfort to enemies of our country. Uh, the second reaction that I have is that it's unclear to me whether the president of the United States is a Manchurian candidate or so fundamentally unsound that that's an irrelevant distinction. That is, whether this is purposeful or just intrinsic to how this person operates, it, I can't make the distinction myself. It's what we political scientists called overdetermined, right? There's so many possible explanations to this that it's hard to tell which is true. But, but the conclusion I draw from this is that uh, the Mueller investigation has indicted or received plea bargains from 32 people. Uh, That's a towering edifice of, of Russian intrusion into American political processes and uh, engagement by our fellow Americans in the undertaking that we need to have a political solution to this. We need to actually have a national conversation about whether this is an okay way to do American politics. And if it's not, we need to bring a stop to it. And legal remedies, satisfying as they may be, are a deus ex machina that do not prevent us from making our political peace as voters, as citizens, as patriots, to the circumstances we are now confronted with. Well, Ed, let me, um, you know, raise another dimension of this thing, which is that Mueller, by putting forth this indictment on Friday, uh, and Coates, by making the statement he did on Friday, clearly felt that a statement needed to be made prior to the Trump-Putin meeting. And it's interesting to reflect on what might have happened had they not, because Trump's behavior with Putin reiterated a lot of themes he's mentioned before. Now, he did it standing beside Putin, and it was particularly reprehensible. 
But because of Mueller and Coates and Friday, it seemed that much worse because it they they made the point, which I think is a central point, which is frankly a lot of people are really uncomfortable with, is that this is not a political issue. This is not a Trump issue. This is not a why don't the Republicans do something issue. This is a national security issue. There is an attack ongoing against the United States. The stakes are very high. It happens to be coordinated with attacks against uh, the UK and other countries in the uh, Western Alliance in Europe, including Germany, France, Italy, and some of the countries of Central Europe. Um, This is not politics. It's not a reality television show. It's something more serious than that. They were making that point, and I think that changed the whole feeling of today. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. It did. And as you've written, David, um, you know, Rosenstein's, the timing of Rosenstein's indictments, you know, were not coincidental. I mean, this was a very clear um, signal from another America, not represented by Donald Trump or not at least championed by Donald Trump, that the American system continues um, to work. And Dan Coates, of course, David read out, um, David Sanger read out the statement that the head of the DNI that the DNI put out after the Helsinki press conference uh, underlined that he's not not just um, he's twice now intervened in the last um, few days, and you'll see you know a number of um, a number of I think follow ups to that in the com- coming days. This is a gathering storm. I think the shock is being replaced by very very energetic concern. Um, my if we were just to leave it at that, I would be feeling. Um, not quietly confident, I, I, I panically confident um, about the state of the world, that this is just a rogue Manchurian president um, uh, attempting to wreck the Western alliance. But uh, what makes me uh, sort of share Rose's um, uh, entropic sort of frame of mind is that the Republican Party um, is with Trump, most of the Republican Party. We have some stray senators such as Jeff Blake, Bob Corker, John McCain, all of whom are going out, um, uh, making uh, mild criticism strong in the case of McCain, but fairly mild in the case of the other two. Uh, Lindsey Graham, even milder, Marco Rubio um, issued a statement, or at least tweeted, um, a, a criticism of not treating Russia as an adversary without calling out Trump by name until we see the Republican Party stand up and declare that the president is actively undermining America's national interests and must be stopped. And until we see them saying that the West is being, uh, the Western alliance is being shredded before our eyes by a a, a ballistic sort of president in a China shop, then I'm not going to feel confident that the system is working because it's not just Trump that Putin has in his pocket. It's Trump plus the GOP, and that's deeply disturbing. So, Rosa, one of the things, we're recording this sort of hours after this thing happened, and I think in a kind of an interesting development, uh, within minutes from the time that uh, ago, from the time we started uh, recording this, yet another Russian has been charged uh, for conspiracy to interfere in the U.S. elections. Um, and it was just somebody in the Department of Justice felt like it was 
a good time to announce this latest uh, uh, arrest, which the and the person was apparently arrested um, yesterday on July fifteenth uh, for, according to the statement, um, that she wanted to act as an agent of Russia inside the United States by developing relationships with U.S. persons and infiltrating organizations having influence in American politics for the purpose of advancing the interests of the Russian uh, Federation. Um, This is a woman named uh, Maria Butina, apparently. Uh, So it's clear there are people in the Department of Justice who feel, given where we are, that they need to step it up, follow through on what they're doing, make it public. Uh, Dan Coates seems to feel that. Uh, But from the political side, we're just getting expressions of outrage. Uh, Tweets, uh, statements, statements plus tweets, tweets embedded in statements. Um, in, in, In a fantasy of what might happen in a functioning Washington. A functioning democracy. What what do you think ought to be happening right now in Washington if it weren't for the complicity of Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and those guys? Well, you know, I think that this is the point this is the point when there should be hearings in Congress looking into the president's behavior and I, David, I think this is a point that you made in your Daily Beast piece uh, the other day, um, uh, and we've all made in, in a variety of different ways um, as well, is, is, you know, whatever, whatever, whether or not there was any anything that amounts to collusion in the colloquial sense um, or a conspiracy uh, or, you know, or blackmail of Trump by Russia to get him to do its bidding in the run-up to the 2016 election, this sure appears to be collusion now, you know, when the American president stands next to Vladimir Putin uh, in front of the world and essentially sides with Putin over <laughs> U.S. intelligence agencies. It's, you know, it, it's it's shocking. Um, and if we had a functioning democracy and a, a Republican Party that was willing to stand up for any of the principles that it has claimed to hold for decades, um, this would be time for an active investigation into the president's behavior with consideration, ultimately, of impeachment, um, you know, serious consideration by his own party of impeachment. You know, and, and it's it's amazing to me that we, as Ed said, we, we don't have Republican leaders in Congress who are willing to even raise that possibility. And, and I, because I think that what is happening now is so devastating to the United States. And the irony, of course, is it's not as though the, you know, if you're a Republican conservative and you're thinking to yourself, well, we can't impeach Donald Trump because what comes next? Well, you got Mike Pence standing right there. You know, that, that, that you have viable alternatives who support your own ideology. It's not an ideology I support, but, but you know, I don't, I don't even understand it. It's, it's truly kind of baffling. And, I, you know, on, on the one hand, I think that we sometimes get a little too hung up on uh, distinctions that, that don't matter that much, you know. Well, you know, on some level, like we'll, we'll never know whether the Russian interference uh, affected the election outcome for sure. You know, there were so many things going on, um, including the you know current liberal hero Jim Comey's actions, which might have influenced the election, including Hillary Clinton's own 
missteps that might have influenced. You know, there's so many things. It's hard to. It's probably never going to be possible to say decisively that Russian interference is the thing that tipped the balance. Um, and I don't actually think it matters, you know, anymore. That that that's kind of the wrong question to be asking. Similarly, I actually don't think that the conversation about is this treason, is this not treason, matters terribly much. That's a legal distinction. Um, and you know, wh- wh- wherever you come down on it, it's it's irrelevant to the broader question, which is: yeah, this, is it's this a legal distinction on a political process. It's a legal distinction on a political process. That's exactly right. And, you know, and impeachment is designed to be a political remedy, first and foremost. You know, when you have a president who appears to be incapable even of listening to his own advisors, you know, who appears to be incapable of doing the most sort of minimal due diligence. And, and, and you know, I think that the the oath of office, right, that the president takes, the the Constitution's requirement the president faithfully execute the laws, serve as commander-in-chief, you know, it's it's hard to see Trump's behavior as in any way consistent with those most fundamental responsibilities. You know, so I I I I do think if we were in a functioning republic that was in which the branches of the government were abiding by their constitutional responsibilities. Uh, we would see Congress acting to say, this guy can't be president. Yeah, I think that's pretty compelling. You know, taking Corey's point, there have been uh, over 30 people either indicted or pleaded guilty in this thing and over 200 charges filed and we're early on in it and the president has continued to deny it in the face of the statements of the intelligence community and then he has stood beside um, uh, the 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 president of the Russian Federation and performed as he did today, days after, by the way, he attacked NATO, days after he said the EU was a foe, days after, um, uh, you know, he continued his assault on the sensibilities of our allies generally. You know, you would think that somebody would take some action. But David, there's another dimension of this, which I think gets lost because we're outraged. Um, um and, and that is that if somebody were really, really smart and they were really attuned to the issues of our time, this would be the time to release a really significant book on cyber conflict. Yeah, who'd do something like that? They're too, too much work. <laughs> well, it's very complicated stuff. You know, the average person can't understand this stuff. Uh, but, but the it, average deep state radio listener can. There is no such thing as an average our deep state nerds radio. Get it. Yeah, our nerds do get it, and hopefully They're they'll get all it. all above average. We're all, thank state. you. They actually are. Yeah, right, in, in the Wobegone deep state. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, David, your book is brilliantly timed. Uh, it's a brilliant book. I've finished it. It, it is, it a, is it, a brilliant book. It is Jeez. a it is well, a book. Came on to you guys. What have you guys been drinking in the studio? No, David, you're absolutely right. It, it is. <laughs> no, no, it's an extraordinary book. But it does raise an important element of this kind of thing. Because when you take, for example, an issue like um, was treason committed? And, and we can, you know, debate it till the cows come home. But if you define cyber war as war and a cyber attack as any other kinetic attack, there's no question about it. And there is, in this particular case, no clear set of definitions that pertain to cyber war in that case. Simultaneously, you know, if, if Article 5 of NATO included 
words about cyber attack that were similar to the words that exist about uh, kinetic attack, then NATO's response to this and all the other attacks would have been quite different. And so it seems like here we are in the middle of the first major cyber slash information war of our era. And I know there have been a lot of other examples, but we're in the middle of it. And, and we don't even have the vocabulary we need enable to, to enable us to have a discussion about the appropriate responses. Well, David, there's some good news here, um, but um, it makes the problem even worse. NATO has included uh, cyber. A few years ago, they passed a resolution at the, one of the annual NATO uh, meetings that said that a cyber attack could result in the invocation of Article 5, just the way a traditional kinetic attack uh, could. Now, nobody defined what that would be, just as nobody has defined what kind of traditional attack leads to the invocation of Article 5. And of course, Article 5 has only been invoked once, and it was the day after the September 11th uh, attacks. So I think you've raised a really critical question. So the first is, is interfering in another or attempting to interfere in another country's election, an act of war. Um, we should probably hope not, because we've tried to interfere in a fair number over the years. Italy in the 40s, lots in Latin America in uh, the 50s and 60s, Iran, of course, where the U.S. helped stage a coup in the 50s, um, Vietnam. I mean, the list goes on and on. So I'm not necessarily sure that what the R Russians did here was an act of war. But it was certainly an act of cyber conflict. And, you know, much of what I recount in the book is the paralysis of the Obama administration as they try to come up with these definitions themselves and then figure out what the appropriate response is. And I argue that they under responded. What the um, Trump administration has done, though, is in some ways worse. They've dismantled the infrastructure within the White House that even debates these issues and tries to come to some kind of consensus. So it's not like they're doing something bad. They're doing nothing. They've stopped this debate, which was roiling along for 10 years over two administrations. And um, I think in part that's because as you saw at the press conference, the president just doesn't want to deal with the issue. He can't deal with the issue in a way that doesn't make him think about himself. That's a good point. I do want to go back to Article 3 of the Constitution because when it defines treason, it defines it as levying war against the United States or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Not and. Uh, in other words, it doesn't have to be an act of war that's involved. Whether, that's right. That's right. Whether, whether, and, and your argument is your argument is that that was a press conference full of aid and comfort. Well, but but I mean, so the, the the legal response would be that the in the context of treason, the term enemy is not used loosely. It's used to describe those with which those states with which we are in a state of war, uh, declared or otherwise open. And that although I, David, I, David, you've made the argument to, with which I'm, I'm sympathetic that at a certain point, um, you know, these sort of proxy and hybrid uh, gray zone activities uh, amount to acts of war. I don't think in a legal sense we are currently in a state of open war with Russia. So, so, so in, in the sense in which 
the Constitution uses that term and in terms of how we've used it historically. I don't think we're there uh, at the legal definition of treason. I also don't think it matters because, you know, the, there's a reason that the Constitution gives the uh, the ability to impeach a president for high crimes or misdemeanors in addition to treason. You don't have to get treason. And, and, and I, for all kinds of reasons, I actually think that not only is the debate about does this constitute treason kind of a red herring, because it doesn't really matter what you call it legally. It's horrible. It's dangerous for the U.S. But I also think that there have been so many, too many instances in the United States of uh, sloppy use of the term treason to denounce uh, behavior with which we ideologically disagree. I, I don't here, think here. We, I don't think we need to go to treason. I think that there's I think there's plenty here that is stupid, imbecilic, reckless, dangerous to U.S. national security, and possibly criminal in a wide variety of other ways. You don't need to get to treason if you're looking for reasons to say maybe Congress ought to consider impeachment. Okay, well, let's, again, I understand what you're saying, and I understand why you're saying it. I think that there would be an interesting debate about whether you could define the Russian military, which is organized primarily with the pur- purpose of fighting war against the United States of America uh, and has been systematically seeking to undermine us and our influence around the world uh, and with whom we've been locked in a lot of non-war conflict for a long time as enemies is an enemy. But You could, but, but we haven't. Well, well, I understand. I mean, that's a, that's a legislative call, which is to say it's a political call. Well, I, I think it is, but I I, th- I do think, you know, if there is any entity out there that uh, could attack the United States and your first impulse would be to say this is an enemy, it would probably be the Russian military launching a direct attack on American democracy. But let us set that aside for a moment. And, Corey, let me turn to you, continuing in this vein, which I think is an important one, of semantics, because... You know, the, the the default among members of the Republican Party, including the president of the United States, plus a lot of members of the press, is to refer to what the Russians did as meddling um, and to uh, try to frame this entire thing uh, as um, a political issue about the legitimacy of Donald Trump uh, or something about Hillary Clinton, because they always throw that in there. Uh, And there also is this kind of tendency among many to say, well, let's not use these strong terms because that smacks of Trump derangement syndrome. And the question is, how far do you have to go in cozying up to an adversary who seeks to undermine the fundamental institutions of not just our society, but Western society, before you stop talking about it like it's a political act and start talking about it like it's an urgent national security concern? It's a great question, David. So I share Rosa's view that we have allowed ideological differences to be painted in starker terms than is appropriate for political disagreement. But uh, this is not that case, right? This is a case where um, 
the intelligence communities of the United States are unanimous in their uh, analysis and conclusion that the government of Russia and its gray area activists have committed effective espionage against the United States. And we need to look that squarely in the face and acknowledge that free societies run certain vulnerabilities that authoritarian societies do not. And that's what's beautiful about our vibrant, democratic, free world. But we nonetheless have responsibilities to protect ourselves. And what the intelligence communities and the Mueller indictments have made clear is that the Russians mean to undermine public confidence in our electoral processes, to be able to determine outcomes in our electoral processes, and that neither the president of the United States nor the majority party in the Senate and the House are willing to look that national security threat squarely in the face and take action consistent with our national interests. And so it is going to fall to us as citizens to um, square our shoulders and to do what Norman Rockwell would expect us to do, which is hold hands with each other and act in our national interest and hold our political leaders accountable and hold our institutions accountable for addressing this threat as we need it to be addressed for the good of our country. Yeah, here, here. And that's what we expect people out across the deep state to do. Um, hey, can, and- I, can I take the, the small risk of um, disagreeing briefly with something? This is really risky that Corey has said, because as we know, By Corey's always right. By all means, my friend, let's okay. think our way through this together. It's, it's that, this is it's scary that, and hard. It's the word espionage, because if this was merely espionage, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Because I see we all the spy argument, each other. David. Yeah, they did something a lot more than just espionage. Right. I and- see you the argument. David is right. And and I think so you're supposed to say David is exactly right, Corey. Yeah. Well, David, David is exactly right. <laughs> yes. Well, we, 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 I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, it, 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 on all of these issues of semantics, you know, we're having we're splitting hairs around some very, very tough words. But the, the zip code we're in is a very, very dangerous zip code. And it doesn't matter whether it's treason or nearly treason, war or nearly war, um, we are at, at a moment of crisis. And I think one of the things, Ed, that is clear here is as Mueller starts to, or continues to unfold his case, uh, and this most recent arrest of this woman, Maria Butina, illustrates this well, it seems like he's laying the groundwork to say, Something very serious happened. The Russians did it. And, and now we're getting to the end. X people in the United States were involved with it. Now, in the Marina, Maria Butina case is kind of interesting because she worked with this guy, Alexander Torshin, who tried to infiltrate, apparently, uh, or uh, uh, use as a vehicle the NRA. And pretty soon, there are a bunch of sort of 
chickens that are going to come home to roost for the Roger Stones of this world, the NRAs of this world, members of the Trump family. The story is going to start getting American, it seems, real fast. And that's going to also make this a little bit more difficult to talk about rationally. Because it yes, be- I think that's right. Because it becomes an existential struggle for the Republican Party, which has put all their chips on this uh, particular number. Uh, I, I would agree entirely. I have, to, I have to slip in that I couldn't imagine better timing for Sasha Baron Cohen's new series, um, the first, <laughs> first part of which you know, has a bunch of NRA uh, and Republican um, lobbyists um, endorsing um, uh, guns for toddlers. Um, the NRA um, element of this is one very interesting um, dimension. Bettina has, you know, alleged to uh, attempted to infiltrate the NRA and use that as a vehicle to influence the Republican Party. Um, and of course, the NRA doesn't need Russian infiltration to influence the Republican Party. It spent $30 million in the closing weeks of the campaign on very aggressive, very overt, and by all accounts, very effective campaign, uh, campaign ads. Um, for Trump's election, so you know if you're um, if you're looking at possible tipping tipping points as to how the election was won, the NRA's contribution is certainly up there. Um, we've known for a while about Russian um, uh, covert support for the NRA, uh, but this obviously makes that concrete. Um, if, as your question uh, implies, and as I think um, the logic of the situation suggests, the net is now tightening on to American nationals. Uh, a further set of indictments of of the likes of Roger Stone uh, and others. Um, And if, as you also, I think, rightly imply, that then repolarizes the situation, uh, then you you cannot feel anything but deeply worried for the coming weeks in, in American politics. I saw somewhere, I can't remember where now, I think it was the Toronto Star, did a chart of when a bar chart of when Trump had made um, his, had lied, his inaccurate statements um, uh, from all the fact-checking sites. And the increase in the rate of lying in the last two weeks has been absolutely dramatic. It's been absolutely dramatic. And I think that's always a a lead indicator of Trump's concern about Mueller getting close to the bone. So I think, yes, Mueller is getting closer to the bone. Um, I do think that Trump will therefore um, double down. And I expect, although I hope I'm wrong, that the vast majority of elected Republicans will go along with him, at which point, you know, we, we are getting closer, not, not perhaps to a constitutional crisis, but to a democratic breakdown. Yeah, don't say constitutional crisis. It makes Rosa. I know. I was wearing Rosa. Rosa gets really, really <laughs> nervous. Close. Okay. That's actually a really nice distinction, though, because we can have a democratic cri- We can have a democratic breakdown without a constitutional crisis, and it can be just as serious for the good of the republic. Right, Absolutely. and and we can have well. Let, let me leave that here. We don't have a great deal of time, and I want to have hey, can quick, I, can I quick exchange. David, on, on, on just Ed's point, was one thing. If you go into that indictment that was issued on Friday, and we haven't seen yet what was released on the woman who was arrested uh, as we've been speaking here, 
that indictment shows that someone, either the NSA, the Dutch, or the British, were so deep inside the Russian servers that if there were any connections back to Americans, anybody involved in the campaign and so forth, they likely have that material. And I think the import of the indictment is not just the 12 officers. It's what it told President Putin and President Trump about what may be coming next because of the specificity of those conversations. David, just also say something that we've talked about in past episodes, and I've changed my mind on this. Um, up until now, I've I've been ambivalent about whether decent people like Jim Mattis should stay in the Trump administration. I think uh, I think for me, we've just crossed over into resign. You guys need to get out of there because you're enabling at this point. And it, the only thing that I could imagine possibly shaking the Republican Congress into action on Trump would be significant high-level resignations by people like Mattis. Okay, well, and I want to come to that in our next episode. We've got just a couple of minutes here, and I want to ask a question to David, and then I want to ask a question to Rosa. I, I do think that the next phase of this, or a very close phase of this, is going to start involving Americans. Um, but there are some elements of what remains in the Mueller case here that that still have a kind of a tech-cyber component, because we haven't seen what happened with or, or what he might do with Cambridge Analytica, which was clearly involved both here and in the Brexit case. Uh, and I noticed in one of your articles that, uh, I, th- I think it was one by, by you, that it seemed like this was flagged very early by British intelligence. So, so was it British intelligence or was it Dutch intelligence? But it was, it was flagged by a foreign intelligence service, um, the, 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 you know, very, very early on. And it seems to me that there are issues about the use of analytics and Cambridge Analytica and uh, uh, so forth that we haven't really gotten into, including um, referred to, but not by name in the Mueller um, uh, indictment on Friday, WikiLeaks, um, who seem to have a big role in this. So I'm just wondering, as the expert on this, how how many more shoes do you think there are to drop on the cyber side? Uh Uh-oh, the Russians have eliminated David. <laughs> they, they haven't eliminated me. They oh, thank God! To, thank, thank <laughs> that was that was Sorry. the other shoe. <laughs> yes. So yeah, um, that was on, the other shoe. On the uh, on the the British side of this, I, I wrote a chapter of this just to you know get into Corey's good graces, and she's now you know living amid all these British spooks. Now the the <laughs> the British GCHQ general. Uh, the general headquarters uh, group that uh, is sort of their equivalent of the NSA was the first to go warn the uh, U.S. that they were finding traffic from the Democratic National Committee running in these networks. And uh, so they played a very critical role. At the same time, the Dutch were inside some of the GRU's operations. And then the NSA kind of woke up to this and they began digging in more deeply and putting in their implants as well. So there could be a very large, bigger cyber element of this uh, to drop. And that's why when the president was throwing around all the stuff about the Democratic National Committee's server, it was totally ridiculous. Nobody gives a what's on that server. The question isn't, whether the emails were on the server, of course they were on the server. That's where they were supposed to be. The question is, 
were they then on the GRU servers? And that's what you can only determine right. by going in in a, in a significant cyber operation. Mm-hmm. Okay, but wait a minute. We haven't yet gotten to the president's invitation to the Russians to help us figure this out, David. Isn't that great? It's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, it, 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 I felt like I was in an Agatha Christie movie where you get to the little that little uh, British town and the chief murder suspect uh, announces that she really wants to join the investigation and find the killer. Right, exactly. Come on in. Yeah, right. Um, like it's, more, it's more Miss Marple than Agatha Christie. But ah, there we go. See, it, it takes somebody with the right accent to get that one right. Yeah, I, I have to say, I think it's more the Pink Panther than either of those things. I mean, it is. <laughs> well, so, no, the, the press conference, funny, my the press we're conference looked more dangerous. like Monty Python. You know. So. Yeah. Well, it's 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 it was pretty pretty hilarious. Rosa, you know, our friend Joe Cerincione, who's on here periodically, wrote an article uh, that appeared today on something called Low Blog called Distrumpia, Donald Trump's Dark Future Now. And it's basically a recapitulation and a recollection of his visit, his last visit to Deep State Radio, uh, in which he quotes uh, 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 a bunch of us about where things could go. Um, and what six and a half more years of Donald Trump might do. Um, Looking at it as you do now, uh, looking at it um, from the perspective of the past four days, does your prognosis for the Trump administration change from what it was even two weeks ago? I think that, as I said, I think we have just... We've had so many tipping points, right? There, I feel like the, the the terrible thing here is that there have been so many days where you wake up and you think it's inconceivable that Trump just did that. It's inconceivable that he just said that. You know, now for sure, you know, the the Republicans in Congress will respond and so on. And yet, it never has happened. This sure feels like an even bigger tipping point, um, where where the non if, if there is a continued non-response other than sort of vague, well, you know, we certainly are concerned about Russia. We wish the president said something reiterating our concerns kind of nonsense coming from Republicans. If that's all we get, um, then I, you know, yeah, we are, we have slid significantly further down the, the long and depressing slide uh, uh, towards constitutional rot and democratic crisis, if you will. <laughs> Um, it's it's pretty awful. And, and let me just mention, once again, it's probably worth pointing out to people, hello, Republicans in Congress, that if you don't like impeachment, there's always article, there's always the 25th Amendment, which allows you to uh, temporarily uh, put Trump on ice while you figure out why he's such a loon. And you can always try that one. I'm sure Mike Pence would go along. I'm sure they appreciate your advice. Uh, certainly we do. Uh, we've come to the end of our time here on this episode, uh, and uh, we will continue with our discussion of some of these issues in the next. Somebody out there in Deep State Radio Land said, you need to change up your material. And I agree, we do need to mix it up, but not this week. Um, there's a lot going on, and I want to continue the conversation. For now, I want to thank Corey, and I want to thank Ed, and I want to thank David, and I want to thank Rosa, and I want to thank everybody out there uh, in Deep State Radio Land for joining us, and I want to welcome you um, uh, uh, to join us again on our very, very next episode. Thank you very much. 
Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.